Well, hello there, and welcome to Food Lab Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bucker. One of our big aspirational questions here at Google is to see how we can contribute to enabling the planet to feed and nourish the 10 billion people by 2050, and to do it in sustainable, inclusive, efficient, nutritious, and healthy ways. A good part of that work lies in shifting diets. And that's what season two of Food Lab Talk is all about. Why we need to shift diets from where to where and how. To kick off this season, we're going to be talking with the leading light in the culinary arena, Greg Drescher. Greg is a senior advisor for strategic initiatives at the Culinary Institute of America, widely recognized at the world's premier culinary college. Greg is a longtime collaborator with our food team at Google. He's a personal inspiration for me and a creator of many programs, including the Worlds of Flavor International Conference and Festival and the Menus of Change Conference. Thanks for joining us on Food Lab Talk, Greg. Welcome to the show. Great to be here, Michael. So I think that in your career, Greg, you have been focused on building sustainable food systems and it's part of the CIA's work as well. So from your point of view, what is a food system and what makes a food system sustainable? Well, I mean, simply a food system is everything in the kitchen sink. It's everything from how food is grown, how it's distributed, how it's prepared, it's retail, it's restaurants, it's agriculture, it's uh, fisheries, it's, it's all of it and how it works. And, you know, a lot of change makers, you know, rightly point out that we need major food system transformation. Oftentimes, the, characterizing it as the food system is broken. The way I think about it is more is that the food system over delivered on initial promises to create efficiency and make food more accessible to all. So, you know, I think one of my sort of first principles in all this is that whatever we do, we can't lose the efficiency that's in the current system. We have to reinvent what that means. But we have nine to 10 billion people that we're going to have to feed on this planet in 2050, as Eat Lancet so well characterized within planetary boundaries. If we consistently exceed those planetary boundaries, we're we're going to be in trouble as we're in trouble now, but we're going to have a whole lot more mouths to feed. So it would be enough of a challenge if we had to feed the existing population in a healthful, sustainable way. But we're, we're looking at um, a, a lot more people to feed coming up. So all of those things get wrapped up into what a food system is. And I think what we need to think about as we, as we work to change the system. Two follow-up questions for you, Greg. The first one is, our audience might not be familiar with the Eat Lancet Commission and the work done by that. So if you could speak a little bit about that. And then two, how does it all tie back to an, a culinary school? Good question. So the Lancet is the, the British medical journal, the Lancet. You know, everyone's heard of the New England Journal of, of Medicine. Uh, the Lancet is certainly in that top tier category. And uh, the EAT Foundation is based in Norway and is very much um, actually very similar to a lot of the thought leadership work that we do at the CIA, very focused on food system transformation. And they teamed up to basically ask the question, how do we feed uh, 9 to 10 billion people in 2050 in a way that provides optimal diets, access to optimal nutrition, and stays within multiple planetary boundaries, not just climate change, but biodiversity, land use issues, and so forth. And basically what they came out with is a what we call at the CIA a, a plant-forward dietary pattern. Uh, making a shift from a dietary pattern that's overly dependent on foods from animal sources 
to one that's much more dependent on foods from plant sources. Not to exclude foods from animal sources, but it's shifting the balance. It's rebalancing that. So, and I think that's where chefs come in, because although there are populations around the world where we can learn a, a whole lot about delicious, you know, healthy, sustainable plant-forward cooking, in the United States and Northern Europe, uh, we've been very reliant on foods from animal sources. And so, if you look at the chef community, if you look at food preparers in general, whether they're preparing food for retail or home cooks or, or chefs, our real expertise is working with those foods from, from animal sources. And we're often not very good with cooking vegetables, with preparing whole grains, with, uh, with those kinds of things. And so the opportunity, I think, to tap chefs who historically have been in the business of providing indulgent, over-the-top, special occasion food to say, keep doing that. But you also need to help us think about what is more delicious everyday cooking look like, uh, whether it's in a restaurant or in the home. Thanks for sharing that, Greg. Before I move into ultimately the core of our conversation today, shifting diets to why and the how, could you speak a little bit more about ultimately the students at the Culinary Institute? Do you see or have you seen that over the years, the interest of students has changed as well. Are they more or involved at the same level into sustainability questions, the role of chefs? In other words, are culinary students today showing up as a similar set of aspirations as they did 20 or 30 years ago? I think that's a complicated question. I think that in many cases, well, I would say that they're, they're very different than their students 20 or 30 years ago. They have expanded horizons. You can't escape the fact that we have climate change to worry about. You can't escape the fact that we've got, you know, massive rates of chronic disease and so forth. But, you know, we have a lot of students that come to the CI. They just want to open the next great American restaurant. They want to open a bakery. They, you know, want to invent the next great food product. But I think increasingly for even those students, there's a sense of the landscape as a whole and trying to get their arms around how to make it all work, right? But we also have a lot of students that go directly into media. They work for major companies. They don't just open restaurants and become chefs or in hotels and so forth. So the career paths have diversified substantially. And, you know, working with, with you all at Google, we're, you know, very pleased and proud to have launched a master's degree in sustainable food systems last year which is getting great attraction. So, you know, if you told us this 30 years ago that this was the future of the CIA, I would have, I would have been skeptical. But, you know, it's really in many respects turning into a food university with multiple pathways for students to engage in food. And, and I think there's a, a great passion we have uh, at our student center, our student union, what we call the egg, a menus of change uh, station where we can bring a lot of our work every day for students to see what those menu items uh, look like. Uh, we have sustainable gardens that we run on uh, two of our campuses with our conferences. Students participate in those. So there's a lot of exposure to this. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, I hope that we still create great American restaurants that are full of indulgence, but it just needs to be part of a, of a much bigger picture. And I think CI graduates will be, will be part of leading that in the future. Yeah. Based on my exposure to your work and the, the college in itself, it is so clear to me that chefs have such an incredible influence in how we think about food, what we get to eat, and that therefore as well, they are clear change makers. And that brings me to the core of our conversations today, Greg. 
how might we contribute to shifting diets? What is your actually theory of change as it relates to shifting diets? And then we'll talk a little bit more about how do you believe change will ultimately happen? Well, I think that deliciousness, first of all, is a really key piece of this because if you're asking people to shift diets, which in turn relates to shifting, you know, agriculture and so forth, what you're asking them to shift towards has got to be at least as appealing as what they have now. And so I think focusing deeply on that is really important. And it's important that that's championed not just by chefs. Uh, I spoke to a, an audience of several hundred healthcare professionals at the American Heart Association conference 10 years ago, public health leaders. You know, it was a major research conference from nutrition researchers and public health experts from around the United States. And I, I mentioned something that a number of people have picked up on since then, which is the notion of the unapologetic elevation of deliciousness as a public health imperative. And I said, it's important for the public health community to not just to say in passing that healthy food needs to taste good. Because on the other side, people are trying to make food craveable. And so if you're putting up merely taste good against craveable, you're going to lose every time. And I think the public health community has historically been uncomfortable talking about pleasure, talking about deliciousness, talking about craveability and so forth. And so that just points to, even though we have our own professional lanes, we need to be more comfortable with bridging language to other disciplines so that we don't feel completely lost. You know, it reminds me of a conversation that I had years ago in Central California with some of the largest vegetable growers in the United States. And I said, you know, how are we going to get people to eat more vegetables? And they said, well, you guys, you're the chefs. You'll figure out how to make it delicious. I just grow the stuff. This is a big grower. And I said this in a different way, but I said, that's not good enough. You need to own what happens all the way through the process. And, you know, he, he's not going to become a chef, but he needs to understand, you know, what are those great strategies to prepare vegetables that, that will make them craveable? So that's, that's one piece of it. And then I feel, you know, very strongly about models. You know, policy change is important. There's all different kinds of pieces of the puzzle here that we need to look at. But if you're talking about, you know, healthier food in schools or hospitals or uh, corporate cafeterias or restaurants, we need more models where people can just walk in, experience the food and go, okay, I get it. How do we scale this? And I think we haven't done enough of that. So those are a couple of things, but we have to get the different players to be comfortable with the language in each other's spheres of influence, if you will, and work together. And particularly for chefs, I think, you know, chefs have often in the past been brought in at the end of the line. So senior management figures out a change, uh, maybe it's product development, so on and so forth. And then at the end of this, like, let's bring the chefs in and, and, you know, see what they can do by way of some recipes or so on and so forth. And we need to tap chefs in terms of thinking about culinary strategy, right? So it's not just about recipes. It's really going deeply into, you know, how are we going to rethink menus? How are we going to rethink flavors? How are we going to bring people along? How are we going to build desire? Because as you know, you can tell people to wear a helmet when you ride a motorcycle because it's the law, but you're never going to pass a law telling people to eat their vegetables. So we have to pay attention to building desire. Uh, at the same time, we you know work on the farm bill and do all these other things at the same time. 
if I hear you correctly, Greg, you believe in multiple approaches. And then depending on your role in the broader system, you might actually follow one or more of those specific approaches. Right. And obviously, as you represent the Culinary Institute of America, that trains amazing chefs. It's really about the chefs in the conversations of today. So this notion of shifting diets. Let's start with where do you think we need to shift from and where do we need to go to? And why do you believe that? Well, I think that is very dependent on where in the globe you are. So in, in North America, where we have traditionally had you know, heavily meat-centric, animal protein-centric diets, we need to somewhat de-emphasize that and increase the consumption of whole, minimally plant-based ingredients. In the case of other parts of the world, such as the Mediterranean or parts of Asia, parts of Latin America, you know, I think about the incredible meals I've had in homes in Oaxaca or in rural Vietnam or southern India or, you know, pick your place in the Mediterranean. You know, you historically had delicious plant-forward meals, but in many cases, those dietary traditions are slipping away because there's less food prepared in the home. You have both people in a marriage are working, the allure of processed food all, for all kinds of reasons. Some of those traditions are, are slipping away. So, and then you have other parts of the world that are, are undernourished and they simply need you know, better accessibility to, to more nutritious food. But I think there's also a lot of opportunity for people in the West, in the United States and Northern Europe to learn from traditional cultures. You know, I'm not opposed to food tech. I'm not opposed to plant-based meat and cultivated meat. I think technology has to be part of our future. But there's so much rich tradition that I think we can be inspired by. And, you know, one of the ways to, to think about that is, you know, you might have a chef that has developed a delicious meal, thought about it in the morning, created it in the afternoon, served it at dinner. You're going to get one result. Oftentimes, it's brilliant. You have chefs that have developed ideas and dishes and flavors over the course of their career. But you go into countries like, you know, Vietnam or southern India or Eastern Mediterranean, any number of places, and you have flavors and dishes that have been developed over centuries and just incredibly brilliant strategies to turn vegetables and grains and nuts and healthy oils into delicious meals. So I think that's where we need to, to look at as well. So it, it has to be, you know, where in the world are you asking that question? But with respect to certainly Northern Europe, and the United States and the industrialized world, um, you know, typically it's a move towards more, more food source from, from the plant kingdom. What I always find so interesting, Greg, is that language does matter. And when I say we need to shift diets, people have all kinds of emotional responses to that. Like, what are you thinking? Why are you telling me what I need to do? But I think what we're ultimately saying is that we have a belief that a balanced plant-forward or a plant-rich diet, like we've celebrated and enjoyed for centuries all over the world. That's what we want people to continue to enjoy. But over the last 30, 50 years, for all kinds of good and bad reasons, diets have shifted. And that therefore, depending on your starting point, it is the evolution back to where we were before and or avoid the shift that has started in other parts of the world as well. But you get the question, but how do you ultimately convey that aspiration in a way 
where people feel supported and it goes back to your food culture, your identity, and ultimately the deliciousness versus somebody telling somebody what you have to do going forward. Right. We're not going to be successful in shifting diets just by telling people that they need to do this. We need food professionals and allies of food professionals need to figure out how to create food experiences that people can just walk into. They don't have to think about it. It's just delicious. And by the way, it just happened to be more plant forward. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, I know you've got someone, Michael at Google, that thinks about choice architecture. You know, we, we did a project with Stanford years ago, uh, working with them to design a new food hall where you walk in and you're, you're immediately hit by all kinds of delicious plant forward dishes, some vegetarian, some vegan, but, but not necessarily rich in plants. They didn't take away the meat. It's at the back of the hall. You have to kind of look for it. And by the time you get there, chances are your plate is full. And it's been an overwhelming success. So we're going to have to look at all kinds of levers to, to make that work. It's not just about cooking. It's also about how you create the food environment, how you talk about food. And uh, you're right. Language is so important. You know, in many cases, uh, you know, I'll tell you a, a quick story. We consulted with a, a restaurant chain in the 1990s that fortunately we've gotten away from this, but was convinced that uh, they, they, they finally wanted to offer some healthier items. And they were going to put a little symbol next to all of the, uh, the items on the menu to indicate that they were healthy. And um, we worked, them on, worked with them on some of the new uh, menu items. They were ready to roll out with those. But the, the marketing people, not to pick on marketing people, said, we're not ready with our little icon. They didn't want to just copy the American Heart Association's seal. So, But you go ahead and roll them out, and then we'll reprint the menus later uh, when we or have the icon. So we rolled them, they rolled out the, the new menus. The new items did really, really well. Then the marketing people came along and said, okay, we're ready. We're going to reprint the menus. And with the new menus, those dishes all took a dive because they, they were cued. These are healthy menus. And everybody said, thanks so much for letting me know so I know what to stay away from, right? So it, it's, language matters tremendously. And um, it's a very, very complex, but also, you know, the flip side of that is richly interesting. And we're making great progress. Uh, we really are making great progress. I mean, whoever said, you know, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So we need to, you know, champion where we have progress where we have models and figure out how to scale those and how to popularize them. But we're, we're in much better shape than we were 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. I know you're personally extraordinarily vested in the Mediterranean diet, but I think you completely embrace the diversity of other plant-rich diets as well. So I'm just curious how you see the narrative evolving from it's not just a Mediterranean diet, but isn't it one of the diets that has been so deeply researched and there is clear scientific evidence of why that menu or that diet really works? But that does not mean that other plant-rich diets are less. Is it fair to say we celebrate the diversity of plant-forward diets and there is ultimately a need for more scientific research into other plant-forward diets as well? Is that a, a reasonable... Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. I mean, the irony of this is that, you know, I've been working on the Mediterranean diet before anyone except for a handful of people were really, you know, working on that. And so there wasn't all that research and, and people didn't know that and it was really the low fat diet, you know, that was being pushed by so many people so forth. So, you know, we started at ground zero and built up the research and then 
funding follows success in in research and now you have this incredibly well researched diet that you know typically gets voted as the uh, you know most trusted uh, you know healthy dietary pattern for six years in a row I think recognized by U.S. News and World Report. The the issue is that nutrition research is very very expensive. Clinical trials are incredibly expensive. And there just has not been the money to to do that necessarily in other parts of the world. There needs to be. So uh, hopefully in the future, um, institutions like the NIH and other you know important government sources of funding will look at you know what's an example of healthy, optimally healthy Latin diets and Asian diets. Now recently, I've been very encouraged by a new center that's popped up in Singapore called the Global Center for Asian Women's Health. And uh, researchers from Harvard and the National Institutes of Health are actually looking at, you know, what do we learn from the Mediterranean diet that we can sort of test in Asian populations? So that's uh, trying to do two things, which is to say, is the Mediterranean diet, does it only work in Western populations? But number two, what are the principles of the Mediterranean diet that maybe aren't about flavor, but are about the, the macronutrient mix, right? And that really, at the end of the day, gets down to plant-rich, plant-forward diets. And so I think we'll see that over time. And you just have to look at the long arc of research. You know, and, and you're, you're seeing this all over the world. You're seeing uh, academics that are coming up in other countries and championing uh, the need to do more research on plant-rich diets. But clearly, the overall framing is that there are plant-rich opportunities in every culture around the world. The one thing I would say is that not every traditional diet is healthy exactly as it is. There are, in some cases, some things that may need to be tweaked, or there may be some things that worked at one time when people were incredibly active, and maybe a whole lot of simple carbohydrates you know, were, were fine at that point. But as we become less active and more sedentary and, and aren't working the, the field every day, then uh, you know things like whole grains and slow metabolizing carbohydrates become something we need to pay attention to. But those are tweaks around the, the edge. And the, I think the, the takeaway message is absolutely it's a, a global framework for um, uh, healthy, sustainable, plant-forward diets. And, and that's why we launched our global plant-forward culinary summit several years ago, is exactly to showcase that. And we've had uh, chefs and food experts come in from all over the world. And it's an amazing amount of diversity out there. Chefs, students, you have a broader reach as well for a platform like the Menus of Change. Could you speak a little bit about what the platform is all about, why it got created, and what you've been doing with it? Sure. We've had a long-running partnership with um, Harvard School of Public Health, which um, you know a lot of the top nutrition researchers in the world work there. And for many years, focused mainly on, on health. And going back about 12, 13 years, we said, let's reframe some of our work to put sustainability on an equal platform. And so the tagline for that conference series that we launched about 11 years ago is the business of healthy, sustainable, delicious food choices. So it's you know looking at what could be the future of our industry where you have those things on an equal footing, deliciousness, but also health and sustainability, but then all wrapped up in a, in a package of business. Because if you can't make money doing some of this, you know, you can cook it at home, but maybe the restaurant concept won't work. 
And so it's been an opportunity. We, we started off by creating 24 principles of healthy, sustainable menus, some of which are about operations, some of which are about ingredients. And that's been hugely helpful, I think, to, to the industry. But we also bring in experts to give us a deep dive on biodiversity, on antibiotics, on you know oceans and fisheries and aquaculture, and so some of those issues. And again, we don't necessarily want to turn chefs into experts in some of those areas, but it's important for chefs to become familiar enough so they can be part of the conversation and know what questions to ask and know where to go for, for expertise. That in turn has inspired our uh, Menus of Change University Research Collaborative, which is a partnership uh, with Stanford. The Menus of Change is a partnership actually between CI and Harvard. We're equal partners in that. Then we started something with Stanford years ago that said, what if we were to look at the whole of the university, college university sector as a kind of accelerator where you have young people that are open to experimentation, you have the nature of food service in university environment. It's not like a restaurant where people are coming on, you know, Thursday night or Friday night for a special occasion, or they're running through an airport and say, I've got to catch a flight, feed me in 90 seconds, right? So, and you have all these different cafes, you can try things. Though fortunately, Stanford loved the idea and we cooked this up and now we have something like 70 institutions that are members and we're doing uh, multi-site research across different universities to try things. And they're in a pre-competitive space. Uh, and I think that's moving the, the forward. Going back to your, your question about theory of change, the other thing I would point out is if you look at the whole food system, and this is college universities are a big piece of this puzzle, you know, you might want to poke your finger at somebody else and say, you people need to change. But you know, larger companies like that with legacy brands and built environments are not going to change without seeing success elsewhere. And so you have to see where can you really drive early success that other people can build on. And I think that college and universities, corporate dining, K through 12 increasingly because of the uh, rule changes that were made during the previous administration, those are places where you can really drive change. But I, I think Menus of Change has been a great help to a lot of people in the industry in terms of thinking through a framework around which to build menus and to build action plans. Appreciate all those insights. Greg, probably our biggest audience for our Food Lab Talk podcast are those people looking to affect change in food systems. In that light, would you mind sharing some of your biggest successes and learnings in actually affecting that change? I certainly learned a lot in everything we did with around the Mediterranean diet. And I think that a lot of my takeaway lessons there were the value of working with people outside of your, your tribe, your lane, however you want to characterize that, but then listen deeply and to ask a lot of questions. A lot of these things are like peeling an onion where you, you think you understand something, but if you keep probing, you have a deeper understanding. And so, you know, I'm not a scientist, but I've been working with scientists uh, very closely for 30 years. And uh, there's a lot of trust that has been built up there. And I think that we all feel more comfortable staying in our, that's why they call it a comfort zone, <laughs> in our comfort zone, right? But it's important to reach out because it's going to take a lot of people from a lot of different sectors to drive change. And so I think that the, the opportunity to find other change makers and build strong relationships. This is why we, we developed so many 
industry sector collaboratives at the CIA. We love working with smart people, change makers, and bringing them together and seeing what, what they can do. So I, I think that the, the opportunity to you know, build those strong relationships that are a little bit uncomfortable maybe at first, that will serve you well as you, as you try to drive change going forward. Greg, I think it's a great place to wrap up things for now. Thanks, Michael. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Looking back at my conversation with Greg, a few things stood out for me. First, changing a system is like peeling an onion. You think you understand something, but if you keep probing, you will find an even deeper understanding. Listen deeply and ask a lot of questions. This reminded me of Ashley Zanoli's advice in season one to approach problems with five whys, to understand the assumptions underlying the problem you're trying to solve. Second, Deliciousness is a key ingredient to successfully shift diets. What you're asking someone to shift towards has to be at least as appealing as what they have now. And I think in a broader sense, anytime you're seeking to make change, it's important to consider what your deliciousness might be. What is the thing that you need to focus on to make your aspiration more appealing than the present? And last, reach out and work with people outside your lane or area of expertise. We all feel more comfortable staying within our own comfort zone, but it's important to reach out and build strong relationships with people who don't think like you. It may be uncomfortable at first, but it will serve you well as you try to drive change. For more information about the Culinary Institute of America, including the programs and resources mentioned on today's episode, be sure to check out the show notes. Thank you for joining us for this episode. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the podcast at foodlabtalk.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. As we close, I invite you to pursue your own bold vision and take whatever action you can take toward a better food system. See you next time.